0: You're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. And tonight's topic, we're going to talk about the oversimplification of 10,000 hours. For those who are familiar, it's or aren't familiar. It's Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, where he talks about how long it takes to become an expert at fill in the blank. And and sort of the result of that was he found at about 10,000 hours, you become you have a level of expertise that makes you an expert. And we want to talk about the fallacy of that maybe from a di- couple different angles. One would be how some things you don't need a full 10,000 hours to be th- to have that expertise. And sometimes you need more than 10,000 hours maybe to become what really is an expert in a particular subject matter. So Brian, have you got Any examples on the top of your head of of where that oversimplification happens?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that uh, oversimplification comes from people that think that they just have to go and do 10,000 hours of a thing. And what Malcolm Gladwell is really trying to get at is that it needs to be a purposeful practice, that you have to really go out there and be like, okay, if I'm going to learn woodworking Today, I'm going to be deliberately learning how to do dovetails. And tomorrow, I'm going to deliberately learn how to do mortise and tenons and be deliberate with your practice and not just go out there and just cram it all into whatever you're trying to do. So if you think you're going to be a master woodworker and the only thing you ever do is put stuff through a drum sander, you're not really going to be a master
0: woodworker. You're going
1: to be a master drum sander feeder.
0: (laughs) I like that. I like that example. Um, I, I definitely... I think we've all encountered folks throughout our lives that are really really good at one skill and the the practical example that I would tell you is a friend of mine painted mirrors in a factory for automobiles. So he painted left and right mirrors for cars and became really really good at painting mirrors and you know when when he started painting entire cars he found out that painting entire cars is much much different then painting mirrors. And there are, there were some things obviously that translated back and forth. How, how do you actually spray the thing? If you have this bizarre round, weird object, can you make paint stick to it? Cause that is a difficult thing. Um, what with, I guess there's little, little, little parts of the pieces and parts of what you're spraying that will, that will have venturi effects and other things that will repel paint as you're trying to make it stick to them. But there were things that translated, but then things like big flat panels are much different in how you walk that panel as you're painting a car and so on that that didn't translate and and while i I don't know how long he spent in the mirror factory, it was quite a few years, definitely probably built up ten thousand hours of painting, but it didn't prepare him for doing entire automobiles, which is kind of a bizarre example, but it's absolutely the drum sander feeder level of expertise. I can tell you that he is an expert car painter as well. He does custom work on cars and graphics and all these crazy things—it's—it's it's all translated. But I think that's another good point that sometimes the skill, the drum sander skill, may translate into another skill that helps lower that bar in terms of how long it takes. You know that that cost of entry into a different skill.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, totally on point. There. Uh, back when I was a kid, we've talked before how I worked uh, in a fabrication shop for a construction company. And that was really my first uh, taste of working in the trades. And so I started out working in a metal shop. But then when I started getting into woodworking, a lot of those same skills transferred from the metal shop into the woodworking world. So things like learning how to lay out my uh, workstation and how to uh, set up stops on the saw to get repeatable uh, settings and perfect parts that come out exactly the same and be able to do that very fast Um, once you set your stop you can cut a whole bunch of parts exactly the same. And that same thing works out in the woodworking world. Another example, I don't know if you uh, have watched the PBS show, The Craftsman's Legacy. Ooh, I don't think I've seen that one. So I think they're on a hiatus now because of COVID, but Eric Gorges, the guy that hosts the show, he goes around and he interviews craftsmen all over the United States and talks about what their legacy is that they're leaving behind. And before he did the show, he was a motorcycle uh, builder. So he built custom motorcycles. He was on one of those uh, discovery channels or something where they did uh, biker build-off, I think it was called, uh-huh. yep. before he did the Craftsman Legacy. And so he still, to this day, runs a custom motorcycle shop. And uh, he's starting to get into woodworking. And so we kind of hooked up and we've been hanging out a little bit uh, via online Skype. And so when we're talking about different things that uh, I'm interested in learning from him metalworking, and he's interested in learning from me woodworking, so we're kind of trading back and forth. But he talks in thousands of an inch, where I talk in sixty-fourths of an inch. But once we got a common language down that like, once you get below a 64th of an inch, if something's a little off by that much, to me, it's just a couple of swipes with a hand plane to where, hey, he's looking at it. Oh, that's like three thou off or whatever. So once we got our common language down, uh, we were able to really like talk back and forth about how we transfer our our different things. Like, oh, I do the same thing in woodworking. I just do it this little bit different way. So it was really easy to compare notes and explain and teach him woodworking and vice versa for him to teach me more metalworking.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how how the uh, the idea of rough versus finish translates through almost every type of trade there is, whether that's being an electrician or a plumber, a carpenter, a metal worker, a machinist, uh, fill in the blank. There's always that concept of how can I rough this in and then how do I finish it off and to what level of finish? And that that starts to create that tolerance that you're talking about. If if you're you know roughing in all your side pieces for a piece of furniture uh, for a case, so to speak, and you start fitting them and yeah, it's off by just a little bit, hand plane it, sand it, route it. However, you're going to do that where, you know, maybe in on the milling side of things, I'm going to use a rough mill for getting the basic shape and taking material off in a hurry, but then I'm going to change to my brand new sharp end mill to do the finish and give it a really nice surface when it's done. Now, in in milling, that's a couple thousands maybe You know, a half a thousand spring pass is a pretty general thing for people to do where you literally just run the tool around a second time because the tool bends as it's cutting because of the pressure. So if you run it a second time, it's going to take that last half thousand and everything's going to, you know, just smooth up (laughs) and slip together however you need it to slip together. Uh, That, that, so
1: now you're just transferred, uh, I can transfer that to woodworking Sometimes if I'm running my CNC machine at too high of a feed rate, um, then if I need it to be a high tolerance for those parts to really fit together really tight, I'm pretty sure the reason why sometimes it doesn't, especially on thicker materials, because that router bit is being pushed out away from the material. And um, there is a setting on cleanup pass, but I've never really played with it. That, that would be kind of what you're talking about, right? Like if I ran that last cleanup pass, it might, uh, it might clean that tolerances up.
0: Absolutely. And that's, a, I, I don't want to get too too far into the weeds of, of how we work on a daily basis, but I think all of that information is good information. That's something that I always do. I leave a thousandth or two thousandths on, on my wood router CNC. Uh, I always leave that because of the depths and everything else. I like to clean them up one last time. And so I'll run a separate last pass, exactly like I would on the big CNC mill, Um to, it may not be as much of a spring pass in wood because wood's just kind of different, but wood shrinks and grows as you cut it. You know, as, as you cut it, some fibers can come out. There there are things that happen to wood that that don't happen to metal. Metal is pretty static. When you cut it, it's done moving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I say that. You put heat into a part and it can, you know, uh, in, in aluminum, we have parts all the time that, that we call them the banana on you all of a sudden the heat gets in there and then they start to bend up and might only be a thousandth or thousandths, but it's enough to throw your tolerance off that it becomes a junk part. And just kind of one of those things that you hate when it happens, but it happens to everybody. So yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the notion of, of, of the rough pass and the finish pass and, and it gets down. It, it's also interesting to me, the tolerance a sixty fourth of an inch is uh what thousandths, I think uh, if my math is right, fifteen or sixteen, so it's not very far off, you know in the machining world and and in the woodworking world it's It's a lot closer than I think most people realize,
1: yeah, it's just that you know people that rub their finger across their oh, that's about that's about five thousand or ten thousand. I'm like, I have no idea once you're below a sixty fourth of an inch to me, that number doesn't exist as a woodworker. that's just card scrapers and hand planes to to bring it flush yeah
0: yeah so uh, i would ask i mean obviously from a woodworking perspective you've put in your ten thousand hours i've seen you work i've seen the level of craftsmanship have there been other things in your life that you've put that amount of time into that you would consider yourself an expert on um no not
1: not really well well maybe music uh like like playing the saxophone when I was a kid. Um, I, that, that thing, if you knew me in middle school and high school, that thing went with me everywhere. The, I packed my saxophone everywhere I went and I played with whoever would play with me. And no matter, it didn't matter who they were, if they were like, hey, you want to jam? Absolutely, I do. And I got pretty good at just uh, uh, woodworking uh, and the trades paid a lot better bills than, uh, than being a <laughs> musician. So I kind of gave it up. But recently, my daughter's learning the saxophone and they have a uh, parent night at the school to come play with the band. So my daughter wants me to come play. And I was like, well, I haven't played in 20 years. I got to get that thing out and see if I even remember. And it's amazing how from when I was a kid, how a lot of that stuff really came back really quickly. Like I don't have the smooth chops yet, but I remember all the fingering. I still remember how to read all the music. So now it's just putting the practice back in to get my uh, dexterity back to play again. but it it came back right away.
0: i I was gonna share uh, very similarly. I was a percussionist growing up. I think I started playing in sixth grade, and I stopped really um, dedicated and intentional instruction. Uh, at the end of high school, so when I went off to college, I, I stopped doing private lessons and and playing so much. But I kind of went through in my head, and I had from from basically sixth grade to twelfth grade, so call it seven years, I think, if if you you know do the fence post there, uh, seven years, and I played two to three hours a night, six nights a week, almost seven days a week. So sometimes it was seven days, but I usually gave my parents a day off. Uh, <laughs> if you can imagine having a drummer in the family. Yeah. And, and, uh, my junior year, I used to go to, to, uh, they call them competitions, but that's not really what it was about. It was, it was really having professional, uh, critics listen to you play and they would score you. And, uh, there were different categories and so forth. And, uh, my, my last year of doing that, I, I was ranked a virtuoso. So I was a virtuoso, uh, on both snare drum solo and drum set solo. Uh, and I would tell you the music was very difficult, and at that point, you know it's like yeah i'm a I'm a pretty darn good drummer, but if you add all those hours up, it might be six thousand hours uh so it's not not ten thousand hours by any stretch, but it's probably a little bit to your analogy of someone on the drum sander. I wasn't a marimba player, I wasn't a timpani player uh I didn't play a lot of percussion instruments that you would you know if you were a well rounded percussionist, you might know how to play. I knew drum set. And snare drum and i knew how to solo on them and i played with bands and all that kind of stuff back then as well um but it but i was i was thinking back to and i can remember it uh like it was yesterday there was a point in time where i would i would tell you uh i i recognized the virtuosity uh and and it's bizarre to say it it always sounds like you're patting yourself on the back but no it was just a bunch of hard work and anybody can do it right but i was I was playing. And all of a sudden, instead of playing, I was listening to myself as a third party. And it was the most bizarre thing in the world. You know, athletes will refer to it as being in the flow, uh, and things like that. But there were these incredibly technical things I was doing that weren't even processing in my brain, they were just coming out my hands. And to that, I would say, that's when you become an expert. And, And whether that's in woodworking, you know, when you're in the shop, and you're, you know, your dimensions, you're, but you're you're not thinking of anything. It's it's your mind's off. Maybe not in an in an unsafe way, being off in another world. But but it's like you're watching yourself do the woodworking. It's it's not like those are your hands anymore. It's it's a bizarre thing. I know you've probably gone through it, but but it's to me that was where the shift came from. Being someone learning. To someone who knows what they're really doing,
1: yeah, and also kind of going back to what we were talking about, uh, deliberate practice, um, I had a similar experience. We had state competitions, and it wasn't really about the competition it was about having a professional listen to you and give you feedback, and then of course, you got a score, and they placed you somewhere on their on your place and uh, the first year, I did okay, and then I started taking lessons with uh, a professional musician, and uh, and it was kind of like the karate kid thing. He was all about the scales. Like you need to learn your scales. And one of the biggest things I had trouble with was my timing. I would either rush the beat or I'd lag behind the beat. I was always like, never really right on the beat. And so he's just like, no, just practice your scales. And so he would sit me up with all these exercises of practicing the scales and be very deliberate about how I practice them and with the metronome. And like when you're playing 16th notes, every beat you aim for the beat so that way you know that you're you're hitting that beat every time and the rest of the notes will fall in your your mind will t- tell your fingers to play them evenly together and so that way you're not rushing anymore and so then just pretty soon after doing that for months and months and months then all of a sudden uh the uh i just you could just start to really like feel the beat and then all of a sudden then i didn't have that problem anymore it's just because of that Deliberate practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I would tell you in stark contrast. I've been playing guitar since I was a kid. Uh, I can't remember what grade I picked up the guitar, but it was prior to the drums. If that tells you anything, so fourth grade, third grade, self-taught. I had a poster. Uh, my brother took like three lessons and then quit, and I assumed his guitar and you know started putting the pieces together. My my mom was a musician, and she she sort of helped me understand music, but I've been playing the guitar. I, I play an hour a night, every night. Like, I mean, that's my thing. That's how I chill out at the end of the night. And I'm nowhere near as good on guitar <laughs> as I was on drums. And I'm 47 years old now. And it's like, man, I, I know I've put in well over 10,000 hours <laughs> on the guitar. I, I can play well. But uh, when I go out and see the guys on stage and and listen to what they're doing, uh, they're they're just light years ahead of me. And it's it's amazing you you think you know again, this is approaching that ten thousand hours from the other side. I think you know twenty thirty thousand hours is the right number if you want to be somebody who's an expert on guitar yeah uh, it's in, It's insane how much time that takes,
1: yeah, so do you think like
0: if you're super passionate
1: about something and being really obsessed about learning every little thing about it that uh that helps you move your your ten thousand hours to help shorten it because you're maybe possibly remembering more
0: more yeah. because you're really into that thing. There's a notion, and I, I wish I could remember uh, where I picked this up, but but somebody told me one time when you're when you're getting into something new, um, there there's a concept called the saturation of the idea. And it's that whatever you're learning becomes completely consuming to you. And for me, this happens um, if, for instance, right now, I'm getting ready to build my first acoustic guitar. I've built, you know, handfuls of electric guitars. Uh, I wouldn't say they're they're easy, but I don't have to think about them much anymore. And I've always avoided acoustics because there's, they're exponentially more difficult than an electric guitar. Um, and I've now read, I don't know, I'd put it at about 2000 pages of of books <laughs> that uh, are, you know, written about how to build acoustic guitars. I've watched countless hours on YouTube, just sort of uh, binge watching entire series that might be 50 parts long of somebody putting together acoustic guitars. And, it, and the whole thing is that saturation of the idea. I have yet to pick up the first tool to start building it. I've built all my fixtures and jigs that I'm, I'm going to use uh, but I haven't started cutting the actual pieces for the guitar. But I think, um, you know, w- when you're saying, can you can you sort of, I'll say it, saturate yourself and, and really consume yourself with it, I think you can shorten that window and really put out some nice work. Obviously, uh, woodworking is not new to me. Technical, you know, uh, highly measured work is not new to me. So all those skills are sort of transferring into this new venture. There's a lot of things that go back and forth between electric and acoustic guitars. But I think absolutely you have to, you have to just stack that stuff around you so that by osmosis, you're getting it from every direction when you're learning something that's incredibly different from what you've been doing. I'm I'm guessing you have similar experience, uh, whether that's a furniture style or whether it's something completely different.
1: Yeah, it's something completely different. Uh, uh, I want to, I've always had this interest in like, beekeeping like whenever i see some dude in the beekeeping suit or um there's this lady on tiktok she's her her thing and she's another great day of saving the bees and she she goes out and she doesn't wear a suit or anything and if a swarm of of um honeybees or something has swarmed in someone's backyard or something she just goes up there and just scoops them and puts them in a in a box with her bare hands and i was like oh my god that's so crazy but uh so I just decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I need a new hobby. My wife worries that I'm going to go nuts just being a woodworker. Cause I works all day long, all week long, seven days a week. She's like, you need to find something else to do. That's not woodworking. So I just told her, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this beekeeping thing. And then I told her, I'm going to build my own hives because, you know, I have all the woodworking tools to do it. And she's like, sure. geez, man, <laughs> but so <laughs> I started, uh, uh, immersing myself into beekeeping. I got some beekeeping books. I started watching all these uh, people on beekeeping uh, videos our YouTube beekeepers. And I joined YouTube or joined Facebook beekeeping groups. And even though I have yet to uh, uh, set my hive up because it's the middle of winter right now in here in Colorado, I got eight inches of snow today <laughs> in my front yard and it's mid-March, but you know, that's Colorado mountains for you. But uh, I feel like I'm ready to ready to go when I see people that are posting things from other parts of the country about their beehive. They're like, I don't know what's wrong with my beehive. Uh, just the amount of study that I did because it was something that interests me and I immersed myself in it, I can answer their question and they already have had their hive for a year. So yeah, I think being really passionate and immersive is- it's definitely a good way to learn
0: stuff. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, I would I would follow that up by I think there's also a fallacy too, and I've I've fallen victim to it when when you do immerse yourself that much and you've read and you've watched and you've done all the things, but you haven't actually put uh, I'll say pencil to paper, but that that's not the right way to say it. When you haven't actually gone through that motion in real life, I think things like YouTube and obviously all the stuff that's out on the internet makes people believe they're an expert sometimes before they've actually taken the first step to actually do the thing. That doesn't mean you don't know a lot about it, but you're not an expert yet. And you as somebody who makes YouTube videos and probably lots of them, there are tons of people in the comments to a video, who they'll make comments coming from a, a level of expertise in the in the way they say their comment, but there's some little detail that they they either emit or put in that you can immediately tell this person's never actually done that. Yeah, a hundred
1: percent. There's always a tell in the comment, and you know, like this person is is tearing you down, telling you what an idiot you are for doing that way, and the way they tear you down you realize very quickly like, oh my gosh, this person's never actually held a router because they don't know what to pay attention to the feedback of the router is. They're just repeating what they heard someone else say.
0: Yeah. And, and it's amazing. I, I, you know, my concern is 20 years ago that didn't exist, right? Like you could go to the library and you could get books and kind of surround yourself, but you were sort of forced into trying something a lot earlier in the in the learning process, I think, um, you know, the way books are, and and I I, I still see this, like uh, the acoustic guitar book that I'm, I'm reading right now. Uh, one was about design, one was about the actual construction, same author, uh, two different volumes, massive books. And there's a process in there. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, he's pretty thorough on, a, on his explanation. But there's no way to understand how to do this until you do this. Like I know I'm going to do it, and I'm going to want to call this guy on the phone and ask. Okay, you didn't have this level of detail in the book. Can I? Can I ask you a couple of questions? And I may actually do it. Uh, I know someone who knows the author, so uh, I, I may thanks. have that connection. But it, but it is interesting that, you know, again back to the ten thousand hours again. Watching ten thousand hours of YouTube video absolutely does not make you an expert, but I think it may accelerate you past a lot of the sticking points or hamstring uh areas that that beginners have because you can watch someone who will help you completely it's like having a cheat code in in mario uh fill in the blank mario video game (laughs) now i sound like an old guy sorry this that's the only one i know how to play it, I'm not a video game guy, <laughs> but it's like having a cheat code where you can skip the first three levels or you just have to jump a couple times and then you're through them. Right. Right. Um, or having invincibility or something. But it but it is interesting that that in the world we live in now, you can uh, skip over some of those things. And, and like I said earlier, I think sometimes 10,000 hours is a great round number for people to look at. I think it's really Expertise is built on consistency. It's built on intentionality. So, if you're constantly making yourself better at what you're trying to do and you're actively seeking out, how can I improve? uh, Looking for criticism, I think, is another one. In architecture school, that was one of the most difficult things. First year was to understand that the professors there, the professors in the school were there to criticize you. That was their job. And it hurts sometimes like they just never, they didn't let up. I'll I'll put it that way. There was never an easy critique. You could have had the best project on the wall and there's no way in your third year of architecture school, you're going to have a professional looking project. It doesn't exist. You can't, you can't get there in three years. And so there's always going to be something to pick on. And you know it's it's opening yourself up to that but that's the only way you can grow and that that's the way that you get that cheat code is you have somebody pick on the things that you're not doing well
1: yeah so i do want to add a caveat to that learning from youtube thing as as a professional woodworker that has been doing this for quite a while and i can i can recognize the tells where a beginner would not recognize the tells i think it's important if you're a beginner coming into a uh a new subject that you really ask yourself, especially on YouTube, is this person a content creator first sharing (laughs) uh, the content that they created about a subject that they're interested in, but not necessarily a professional at versus a professional sharing their expertise with you on YouTube. Because when I watch woodworking YouTube channels, uh, there are some that have huge audiences. They have never built a thing. They just stand up there with a great amount of conviction and tell you exactly how to do it and what to do it. And a lot of the times I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is such terrible information. And I feel really bad for the hundred thousand followers they have that are watching this person because they're getting terrible information. They don't know to ask themselves because they're a beginner. So they don't know that that's bad information or incomplete information because they're just repeating what they heard Mark Spagnolo say or something like that. Uh, Yeah, so I think anybody that wants to learn a new thing, they need to really ask themselves, is this person a professional teaching me or is this person a content creator trying to make a video every week?
0: And so. I think we should make a clarification. Mark Spagnolo is a professional making education content. I yes. think I would put him in that category. Yeah, that's why
1: I compared him to yeah. like people just to repeat him. They go watch Mark Spagnolo because he's very successful and he is a, a professional woodworker. and He does phenomenal work and took all the time in the world to learn. He puts, he's probably put in his 10,000 hours of woodworking. And so people watch him and I'm sure that people look at him and then they go okay I can do that and then they go hit record and then they forget three things that are very important that Mark talked about but they forgot about it cuz they only watched the video once and they never actually did it to know that that's an important thing
0: and I know I've used and I'm not this isn't to disparage or pick on anyone I have used the the term prop furniture before as what some some woodworking channels are just making props they're not making real furniture they're not making things that hold up in the real world. They're making an entertaining video that shows how they made something or conceived of something and brought it to life. and there's there's nothing wrong with that, but it can't be uh, mistaken for expertise. I, I think that's very important.
1: right. the The true Testament is well, if you're making prop prop furniture for lack of a better word, you can face the best face to the camera. And Photoshop out all you want, um, but the true test is if you take it to a client and they walk around the entire piece and they say, "Yeah, that's worth the thousands of dollars you charged me for it." Here's your paycheck. That's, I think that's the the, the true testament. And that's kind of like uh, beekeeping. I've been watching all these beekeeping videos, and there are guys that are obviously professional beekeepers and they know a ton about beekeeping. And then there's guys that they're fun to watch, but it's their first time beekeeping. But they come across like they're the professional, but then all of a sudden they're out there with their next video, clickbait video. My hive died. What do what what do you think caused it? Because yeah. they weren't professionals, they didn't know it. So in beekeeping, there's a little bit of a leveling playing field there. That if all your bees die, you got to start over. <laughs> we in YouTube. we in woodworking YouTube. You you don't have anything that dies.
0: Yeah. Well, the scrap bin would the be scrap. where your your dead pieces go. Yeah, right? but you don't. No one sees the scrap bin. I know it's it's definitely not not uh, part of our our normal thing that we might show in a video. I I do want to kind of take a different um angle here as well. So the the other side of 10,000 hours. I mentioned guitar. I, I think you could become an expert guitar player in 10,000 hours if you were really focused and intentional and did all the right things absolutely. Um but my profession, architecture is is one contrast that I think anybody in the profession would tell you. um, The first few years that you do it, you think you're an expert. (laughs) And the more you learn about what you don't know, the more you realize you're not an expert. And uh, I'm 47 years old. I don't know all of it. I've been doing uh, architecture professionally since I was 22, I believe. So 25 years, 2,000 hours a year. (laughs) How many hours do I have in? It's a lot um but but there there's a point at which you you look at your body of work and you look at the things that other people do and you go I don't I don't think I could do that. I don't have that level of expertise as an architect. And uh I've had some really interesting conversations with guys, you know, the week they're retiring. And you know, what what can you tell me and it's like I have so much more to learn. Every one of them will say the same thing, I have so much more to learn. And it it's interesting that you can put in all the hours uh, that you want, but there will always be something hanging out there that you don't know how to do or that somebody knows how to do better. But that doesn't make me, I guess, any less of an expert. Uh, I have a license, I can practice, I get paid to do what I do. Um, so, so there is a level of expertise. I'm not saying I'm not an expert, but it's amazing the once you become an expert in some, uh, some categories there, how many more layers to the onion there are? And I would assume that's very similar in the world of aerospace. It's probably similar uh, in automotive design, other, other types of designs. And I would even say, you know, within within woodworking uh, and metalwork, there's so much to learn. There's so many different directions you can take everything. And, and maybe that expertise is or that expert label is, is sort of the core and then the the hub and spoke. Uh, kind of takes over, and you can apply all of those skills to wherever you want to direct them.
1: Yeah, so like people some in the woodworking world, some people want to know what what you have to do to be able to call yourself a master craftsman or a master woodworker. and uh, and I've seen this on several Facebook uh, woodworking forums where people debate that topic. And some people are like, well, someone that doesn't make any more mistakes, you know, where they're they're so good that they don't make mistakes. And I was like, well, if you're so good that you don't make mistakes, you're so good at that one thing that's back to feeding the drum sander. But if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning anything. You're not pushing yourself to the next level. You've gotten stagnant. So, like the guy that invented the telegraph, he's like, oh my gosh, I am a master communicator with this technology now. There's nothing ever going to be better. And he's over there, tick, 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 hey, check me out. I'm awesome. I don't know if he was that uh, pompous or not, but you know. So then someone comes along and they're like, hey, we got this new thing called the telephone, you know, and they, they built on that, on that telegraph technology to a telephone and the telephone became the fax machine and the fax machine became text messages and emails. And now you have a whole computer on your phone in your pocket. And it was all because someone didn't consider themselves a master at anything. They just kept well how can I make it better? How can I get better my my own skills? How can I understand this world better
0: so now trying to trying to bring this back around to our ten thousand hours I, that begs the question at what point and you said it how how can you consider yourself an expert?
1: Any thoughts there I mean, yeah, what's the guy's name that uh um, discovered the Higgs Boseman. was uh, that Tyson something? Was it uh, Neil
0: Tyson? Degrassi? Neil deGrasse Tyson? I don't know yeah, if I, he... I always say it better, backwards. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, I don't know if he actually discovered it or if he was just talking about it on an interview. Uh, but one of the things he said on the interview, like people ask, well, why is that so significant? Why is that important? You don't, you don't know what to do with it. You just discover this thing, but you do, you don't know what it does really, or what to, what it can do for the the world. And he's and he says, well. Not knowing is the whole point. If you uh, take, we discover this thing now. Now, if we go out and study it and we understand it, then we will know what it can do and what we can do with it. Yeah. Or something to that effect. Some, somebody, some astrophysicist is listening to me give that explanation, just rolled their eyes because I got it totally wrong. But that's the general uh, sentiment that, that the reason why we go out and study these things that we have no idea what they do or what they are and find them is so then, once we do understand them, that could be the next way to power the world. you know,
0: yeah, yeah, well i I've always thought, you know it when you look at experts in whatever field you're you're looking at, there's a certain amount of um it probably goes back to the old adage, uh, freshmen don't know and they know they don't know, right? Sophomores don't know but they think they know. Juniors know, but they don't know they know seniors know and they know they know, right? That that senior sort of is, is the expert. But at some point, you have the confidence to know that I am an expert. Like, yes, okay, I have that confidence. And when you look at something, you may not say, I can do that, or I can make that happen. But I have the tools that I can figure it out, and that I can learn it, and that I can make it happen. And I think I asked you a, a question a, a couple episodes ago about what was the point in your life when you figured out you could build anything? And it's not that you have the skills to do it, but you have the confidence to know, yeah, I can see that thing or I can conceive of that thing. And I know how to formulate the steps that it's going to take. And I know how to formulate the practice or the prototypes or, or the mock-ups or whatever it's going to take to get to that final product that I know it's going to come out. I don't know all the steps yet but I know that I can get there. And I, I find that to be kind of an interesting uh, maybe take on what an expert is. Yeah, hmm.
1: so on a, on a side example, uh, I'm, I'm teaching a uh, SketchUp class. And before I started to teach this class, I didn't know how to draw a threaded nut very well. Uh, in SketchUp, it has a plugin that you can use. You just click on the threaded nut and tell it how big you want it and what you want. And it goes, and it just makes you, uh, it's great. but for this class is for uh, woodworkers that may be beginning of their SketchUp journey and they're not buying the SketchUp Pro. So we're using the uh, the free web-based version. And I wanted to teach how to do it, but I didn't really know how, but I knew enough steps to figure it out, right? So then once I once I learned how to do it, uh, then I was talking to my friend who's really into 3D printing. Saw so it'd be cool if you could 3D print that and then you'd be able to thread it on a nut. So I was like, awesome. So I did that and it didn't thread on the nut. And then I, so I tried to uh, print a nut and thread it on there and it didn't thread on the 3D printed bolt, didn't thread on the 3D printed nut, even though I used the same math to create the two. And so now it's like, okay, so tolerances. So, so going through this whole teaching process uh, made me understand it better of how to draw it in SketchUp because someone challenged my, my thing. They're like, oh, that's cool. Cool. But does it work? I was like, well, I don't know. Let's go find out. So, and then it didn't work. And so now like, I got to call my friend up now and be like, dude, I figured it out. It works now. But, but for him to challenge me, made me, made me go back and really learn how to do and really learn what was going on here. And it's still not perfect. This, uh, this uh, 3d printed bolt has way too much slop in it. And I think that's because my lack of understanding of how, um, The thread pitch works. I don't. I don't have that understanding yet. So that would be my next thing um, to go. And I'm sure once this class launches, somebody is going to be able to explain it to me. There may be a machinist that has a deep understanding of how thread pitch works, or maybe you have uh, that understanding that could explain it to me. But um, so yeah, teaching 10,000 hours, teaching I think will help get you to your 10,000 hours faster because people are going to challenge your. Your students are going to challenge your uh, your expertise and ask you questions that you didn't think about before. Like it never occurred to me to 3D print it to see if it actually worked.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I'm over here grinning like the Cheshire cat because that is a very hot topic among machinists when it comes to threading. How how tight do you want the threads? What is that tolerance? And actually in machining taps and dies, there are H1, H2, H3, H4, and H5 Uh, I don't think it goes any higher than that. It might, somebody could probably correct me, but that talks about how tight those threads fit together. So when you get to a really tight tolerance, if you have two materials like, uh, well, two pieces like stainless steel, if you tighten a stainless steel nut onto a stainless steel bolt and it's tight, they will have a tendency to gall against one another and get stuck, even though the tolerance leaves enough room. So you have to have different tolerance for different materials uh, but there's there's absolutely as you get more threads in contact between the nut and bolt that that tolerance begins to to pull together. If if your nuts were just one thread, you would want the tolerance really tight. But if you have a long nut that goes on something, you want that tolerance to be slightly looser because otherwise it'll tighten as you go in, even though all the threads are spaced correctly. It just that that friction starts to add up. I see. Over time. So this guy.
1: Is pretty tight where I have an actual bolt and I'm spinning the nut on the bolt and it's way tighter even though I use the same threads. But is that because it's possibly different material? You're saying,
0: yeah, it, it possibly different material. But the stuff you find in hardware stores is generally a very loose tolerance type tap or or thread,
1: yeah, because the actual nut on the actual bolt when I shake it, it jiggles and you can hear yeah. that that jiggle to where this is way tighter. So now you're saying that if, since this is a pretty tight tolerance now, if I make this nut longer, so there's like six times as many threads on there, I won't be able to thread this on there because it'll probably bind up because of friction or?
0: Yeah, quite quite possibly. Oh. So yeah, so the amount of friction that's in that nut now, if you made it twice as big, would be twice as much, obviously, because you have twice as much contact. So it's a, oh man, it's a rabbit hole. To, so you if know, you I may record that. this, re-record this
1: bolt and bolt and nut lesson. Or at least to be able to maybe add some of that explanation in there, um, like depending on what you're what you're doing you need to decide what your tolerance is, because I did show how I came up with my tolerances when it didn't work. Um, I snuck up on it. I printed like eight nuts with uh, different spacing as I as I went to increase the tolerances until I got one that would actually thread on there.
0: Yeah. And if you I mean, the the reality is right. The thread is always in the same place it's a matter of how deep that V is. So uh, the, ch- the peak and the channel, um, and those aren't the right words. Uh, I'm trying to come up with the right ones, but if you ever watch machining channels where they, they're making threaded parts, they'll go over them and they'll take a nut and they'll put it on and then they'll take it off and then they'll go over it again until it just fits sweet how they want it. But it's, it's absolutely a, a, a tolerance thing that you can control.
1: So it's a thing to sneak up onto versus the uh, the bolt that I got at the big box store where they're mass producing this thing. And that's why it fits sloppy, because they want to guarantee it's going to fit every time. But if you're uh, working at NASA and you want to make sure that it doesn't vibrate off as it's uh, exiting the atmosphere, um, you you want that guy to really dial that tolerance in.
0: Absolutely. And, and NASA will have specifications for what that thread fit is.
1: Tolerances is. Yeah interesting so yeah. how do they well maybe that's a different story we should, we'll talk, we yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about that online we've got to get back to our ten thousand hours so i can't remember where where we were going with that one spot there but it reminded me of a story from um my my friend dave he was a potter and he will he was i would consider him to be a master potter because he made amazing stuff but he had this weird obsession that he wanted to find out how tall he could make a vase and how thin he could make the clay before it would uh, lose its integrity and fall apart. And so he kept uh, practicing um, to see if he could find the limits of the clay to see how far he could push the clay before it would fall apart. But then he realized that each time he did it, he would be refining his technique. So at the end of the day he decided that he could never decide whether or not it was his technique that needed more perfection or the clay or if he had actually found the end of the the clay or not that what what the tolerances of the clay was so that was going back to Um, uh, whether you're making mistakes and continue to learn to call yourself a master craftsman, if it's really 10,000 hours, or if it's an infinite number of hours, because you keep learning and keep learning and keep learning and perfecting and knowing more and more and more.
0: Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll share a similar uh, story. One of my, one of my good friends is a watercolor artist. uh, And he, he started in the world of architectural illustration. So back before computers spit out all the fancy renderings, everybody hired a painter to come and paint their things. Um, And he's now in his seventies and he still paints and he still paints almost every day. And his talent level is so far and above everybody else because of all of that practice and all of those years stacked upon years, stacked upon years. And he will tell you that he is still changing the way that he paints and he's getting better. And it's it's just amazing to see someone, because most painters, I would say most people who paint for a living, well, not for a living, most people who paint paint as a hobby, they might paint, you know, an hour to a day or something like that. But, but uh, my friend's name is Dick, Dick painted eight to 12 to 16 hours a day professionally, because he had to put out so much work, uh, because of the demand on on his services, There's very few people with those technical skills to paint uh, technical watercolors and you know so so the amount of practice that he had over the last uh probably 40 years plus is has has all come together to make this incredible amount of skill uh that's in his in the ends of his fingers and uh anyway Kind of an interesting parallel there.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like just building on the story. It's like you're part of the journey is, is figuring it out and just constantly learning. Uh, I remember back one of my first commissions when I first started my business, I built a uh, table for a guy and I I wedged the tenons. So they were through mortise and tenons and wedged them and then sanded them flush. And then he that guy started following me on Facebook. And then I got another commission based off of his thing, but then I decided to change it and improve on that joint to make it more decorative. So then I, instead of sanding it flush, I left it proud and chamfered around the edge. And then I was worried that when I go to post that on Facebook, since the first customer is going to see this improved version and then be like, why didn't you do that on me? What what am I going to tell them like, sorry, man, I didn't know how to do that. Then like, I barely knew how to do a through 10. And on yours, you're lucky you got what you got. That was my first <laughs> through 10. you know, but then I just realized that, like, if that ever would have happened, and you're like, someone would ask me that and it's like, like, I just be honest and tell them, yeah, I'm constantly learning and you're a part of my journey. Now you're a part of my story. And uh, hopefully they would be cool enough to accept that. And I think they would because no one's ever come back and said, Hey, why'd you make it better next time? I think everybody kind of subconsciously knows that we're always improving and working on it, getting better.
0: Yeah, I think every piece that we do, I know, you know, in the world of architecture, every building is the last 50 buildings that you've done plus one. And everything you've learned up until that point goes into that next building. And it might not look exactly the same. But all of those lessons that you've learned about what to do and what not to do, uh, all stack up and, you know, hopefully you can share enough of that with the young people around you that they don't make some of the same mistakes you made. Uh, but, um, you know, if they do, you know how to deal with them. Cause you've probably, probably been there. Yeah. So
1: yeah, that, uh, that kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, when I was wasting uh, time on Facebook earlier today, there's a guy called dude dad and he does a bunch of parodies and things. And so he did this parody about, uh, the football player, Um, I can't remember the guy's name now. He's coming back out of retirement after he's retired. What's that? Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Yeah. He's doing a parody on Tom Brady. Shows you how much i watch football, but he, uh, so he's doing this parody on Tom Brady and um, his, uh, he does this little skit where he pretends he's Tom Brady's wife. And and she goes, goes, you have seven bull rings and a wedding ring, which one's your favorite? And he's like, the next one for like the next ball ring like that's the favorite i want to keep going i want to keep moving
0: yes the n plus one that we're all yeah. chasing how many guitars do you need n plus one <laughs> right <laughs> sure well i i think we've been on here uh for it feels like looks like close to an hour so we probably should wrap up yeah well uh i'll start i'm greg porter if you want to check out my youtube channel it's greg's garage is one of them And then uh, on the guitar side of things, it's Skyscraper Guitars.
1: And I'm Brian Benham. And if you just look for Brian Benham, you will find my YouTube channel. Thanks for listening.